0: All right, well, you can turn with me to Hosea, the book of Hosea there at the end of your Old Testament. Uh, we are going to look at the rest of chapter 2 uh, and all of chapter 3, and uh, why don't you pray with me as we begin. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity now to look into your word. We pray that as we deal with Uh, a passage that speaks in stark terms words that get our attention we pray that it wouldn't just be of interest but that you by your spirit would get our heart's attention and that you would get our affection father we pray now that you'd use this sermon to lead us to the communion table to lead us to the cross to lead us to faith in jesus in his name we pray Amen. Some of you know what a drop tower is at an amusement park. So this is one of those towers that you see the people get cranked up very slowly and then it pauses at the top. And then at some unknown point, probably the same amount of seconds every time it, it drops down. Everyone screams and it breaks right before it hits the bottom. And that's the ride. I was watching a video recently of a drop tower that I think was more like county fair style. I'm sure those rides are always reassuring, aren't they? Uh, and this one was inverted. So, so you actually climb to the top and you would get in the chair and then it would drop you maybe a story or two and then it would bring you back up and you'd hop off. So while you're loaded on the chair, the, the controller guy, the guy who's running the ride, is there with his little screen, and it only only two people at once. So this video that I saw was just clips of people doing this ride, and the guy running the ride was having a great time. No one else was. So he would get them buckled in with their waist strap and... Uh, he would go back to the control, and he would say something like, oh, this is strange. Oh, let me come check on that. And he would hit the button where there was a slight pause. And as he's on his way to, like, fix whatever, and their their eyes are wide open, drop, they go. And then it showed a few more clips. And the guy, he's, you know, he's super confident. He's loving his job. And, and he goes and he says, oh, I... You know what, my bad, I forgot to do the shoulder straps. He hits the button, and he walks over, and you can see there just fear in their eyes, right, as they drop thinking, am I about to die? Now, there was no shoulder straps. They were perfectly safe, as safe as you can be in one of these uh, county rides. And uh, it was very entertaining, very entertaining, right? Uh, the operator warns and the riders take him very seriously. Okay, there must be a red flashing light. Okay, yeah, maybe he needs to double check my safety harness here. They're not laughing. He's joking. They don't know it. They're perfectly safe. Nothing bad's gonna happen. When we come to the prophets in the Old Testament, it's the opposite. They're warning. Israel is not taking them seriously. The nation is laughing, but the prophets aren't joking. Israel isn't perfectly safe. Judgment is about to happen. They're trying to warn the nation. And the nation just isn't hearing it. They're not getting it. We said last week that Hosea had the name of the deathbed prophet. And the reason why is because Israel was on its deathbed and they didn't know it. He was going to be the last prophet sent before Assyria would come and take the nation into captivity. The northern kingdom is being warned, and they're just not taking it seriously. They're like, oh, okay. Apart from the spiritual blindness of the nation, we said last week that the nation, the northern kingdoms here, Israel, is in a time of prosperity. This is this is laughable to get a warning now, you know, that judgment seems so, so far off. It doesn't even seem like it's possible. Wealth and and safety have a way of deafening us, don't they? We don't hear the warning. We don't heed the counsel. But fundamental to all of this, underneath all of this, was, there was another issue and we talked about this last week. We talked about uh, idolatry and more broadly sin as spiritual adultery. That's the image that Hosea gives us. What we didn't talk about last week, which is in our passage, is who is other, this other lover that Israel's affection was for? Look at Hosea chapter 2 verse 13. And I will punish her, this is the Lord speaking to the nation of Israel, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Baals here is plural, that's a little surprising to us, clearly there was more than one way or false religion tied up in this Baal worship. Notice that Baal wasn't pursuing Israel. Israel was pursuing Baal, right? And then look at the end again of verse 13. And forgot me, declares the Lord. This is how Jesus put it. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. To worship Baal isn't to supplement worship of Yahweh. It isn't to improve worship of Yahweh. It isn't to amend. No, it's to remove it, to replace it, to supplant it. When when other lovers are pursued, the spouse is forgotten, right? That's just kind of implied with this idea, this this image of adultery. And so it is here. When other gods are worshipped, Yahweh is forgotten. He isn't worshipped. Who was Baal? If, if you've read your Old Testament, you've certainly come across this Canaanite God. In short, he was the God of fertility. right? So he was a God associated with rain and thunder. Remember Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal during King Ahab? We talked about Ahab last week. Israel had, had basically declared that life which in that culture would have very much depended on rain, came from Baal and not from God. Sustaining life, that was something Baal did. That's not what Yahweh did. Baal brought the blessing, not God. Of course, we as Christians know, certainly on an intellectual level, that, okay, we... We can be guilty of idolatry, and it's not little statutes. It's things that we put in the place of God. It can often be good things. It could be family, food, football. You know, the list could be very long. So when we read a passage about Israel going and worshiping Baal, we think, what in the world? Like, like really, like, what in the world? This is so foreign to us. So we have a category of idolatry, okay, got to guard my heart, worship God alone, supremely, what was the attraction of Baal? You know, what, what is going on here? Commentator Doug Stewart, in his commentary, this commentary is on Exodus, gives some reasons why idolatry would have been so attractive in that culture, and especially to the nation of Israel. I'm going to just mention a few of these to just help us understand why you would, in an agrarian culture especially, be tempted to kind of bring in another god. Yahweh, sure. Israel is God's people, sure. We'll still check all those boxes. We'll still agree to the, confe- the creeds and the confessions, so to speak. But but we need some help. Because we need rain this week. <laughs> like, we have to have rain this week. And, and worshiping a false god, worshiping Baal would have given you a sense of control. It would have given you a sense of guarantee, right? Say the right words and get the right response. Bring bring the right offering and, and the God will give you what you need. There was no law in the worship of Baal. There was no ethical standard that came along like, okay, if we worship the cow, the cow asked that we do these other really inconvenient things. No, it was just worship the cow and rain comes. There was not a demand on your life. It was easy. It was simpler. It was was a low ask. It was also really convenient. So in the Old Testament, the shorthand for the franchise of false worship is high places. That's the name. Oh, there's a franchise over there because there's a high place over there. So these franchises were convenient. They're like fast food, right? You could stop in and had drive throughs. They made it really easy. You didn't have to go to one place to worship the God. It was really normal. Everyone was, was doing it. It was actually fairly indulgent. So meat was super valuable, super rare. You didn't eat meat every day, but you would use meat in worship and after you offered the offering, you would feast, right? So that's why it was almost like a, a party mentality that went around this this pagan worship. And then where it gets really sobering is, is that it was erotic too. So to involve the, these idols, Baal and Asherah, would, would make the gods get busy as well. And as a result would come fertility would overflow as it were. This is why prostitution was tied to these different religious sites. All of this, man, it was easy and seemed guaranteed. It was convenient. It kind of made sense. It was really indulgent. It was pleasure. All of this meant that idolatry had a strong allure on everyone around them and on the nation itself. So so what about us? Well, I think idolatry offers us some of the same things today. Control. Ease. Comfort. Safety. Security. We 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 put them on the throne of our hearts if you were if you will we give them ultimate worth we're willing to sacrifice for these things almost all good things and when we do whether it's any number of things right it could be health retirement some sort of approval or achievement at work or in school, sports, it could be entertainment, it could be distra- when, when we put them on the, the throne of our hearts, God is forgotten. You cannot serve two masters. So with having the worship of the day in the background, I want to just consider two points. So the first point will come from verse 2 to verse 13 of chapter 2. And then the second point from verse 14 all the way down to the end of chapter 3. So the first point is this. God's verdict on wayward worship. God's verdict on wayward worship. In Hosea chapter 2 verse 2. And you'll, you'll want to follow along or at least listen. I'll read pertinent verses as we go here. Hosea continues the analogy that we saw last week. Israel is the unfaithful spouse. She is now a mother. We saw this last week, illustrated through Hosea and Gomer. And the children here in verse 2 are individual Israelites. So the call is for individual Israelites, the children, to speak up and challenge the nation, to challenge the leaders. So God says to Israelite men and women, verse two, plead with your mother, plead, speak up, warn her, call her back to faithfulness. So individual Israelites are called to care about their nation and not just themselves. And and yet God doesn't simply judge nations as an idea, right? God Judges, individuals, they're not spared. So we read about this in verses 4 and 5. Note note the specific indictment against Israel here in the second half of verse 5. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Israel is happy to pursue Baal because Israel believes Baal, not Yahweh, gives them these things. It's Baal who blesses. So Israel believes that this fertility God, not the one true God, is to be thanked for providing. This isn't our temptation today, right, to thank some statue for providing for us. But I think we are tempted to thank ourselves We take credit when it was God. We learn in scripture that there is a a principle called sowing and reaping. And we mix that with our own independent, self-centered hearts. And we're happy to take credit for all sorts of things. And yet God, even when he brings the, the reaping, it's God who's doing it, right? He's providing the increase. Who do you think gave you the strength to work hard, right? Work hard. But who do you think gave you that strength? Who gave you rapport at work? Who allowed you to to be born in a nation like this in a time of peace? I hope we'll be quicker with our mouths and especially with our hearts to give God credit and not just ourselves, not just our circumstances, not just our hard work. Here, the indictment comes. Here's the verdict. First part of the verdict comes with the word therefore in verse 6. Second part comes in verse 9. Let's look at the first part, beginning in verse 6. Yahweh here uses figurative language, right? He says, okay, I'm going to frustrate your plans. I'm going to hide your lovers from you. Your unfaithful... And you're going to give up on your lovers, and you're going to go home. You're going to come back to me. I'm going to thwart your plans. I'm going to shut off the supply. Look at verse 6. He talks about hedges and walls. I think the image we would use today is a cattle chute, right? I'm going to use some paneling, and I'm going to drive you forward, and I'm going to narrow it in so you can't go to the left, and you can't go to the right, and you can't return You can't turn around. I'm going to force you to come back to me. I'm going to lead you back to me. I'm going to deny all these other things. I'm going to turn off the spigot of their affection and provision. So verse five, the nation said, I will go after my lovers. Note the end of verse seven. She shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. As I was meditating on Hosea 2 this week, verse 8 just struck me. Every time I reread it, verse 8 just jumped out at me. I think it is really convicting. Israel has a great harvest, and they credit Baal. And then they use that harvest to worship Baal. Look at verse 8. She did not know that it was I, says the Lord, who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which she then used for Baal. There has never been an offering made to a false God, which God did not create and provide. So when we put in the hard work and make the smart decisions and the teamwork comes through and we credit those things and not God, we play the same game, crediting the gifts, confusing them with the giver. God uses all those things. He is providing. He is providing. And get this. He is sustaining you when you rebel against him. When you credit what he is doing to yourself, he is enabling all of that. Do you see how abundantly generous he is and kind and long suffering and what he's saying is okay I see you going after Baal I see you going after the gods of fertility as you have for centuries now and I'm going to bring famine and drought and drive you with cattle panels back to me you're going to know it was never Baal who provided The Lord is taking their sin, their spiritual adultery seriously. If he was using figurative language in verses 6 through 8, now he gets more specific in the second half of his verdict on their wayward worship here in verse 9. He says, I'm going to stop the times of plenty that are credited to Baal So that Baal is seen for what it is a powerless, false God. Baal will be humbled, Israel will be exposed, and she will be driven back to her God. God, through Hosea, uses the strongest of language. He wants them to know I control nature. I control the harvest and I will impose my will on it now so that you remember that I am God. Look down at verse 12 of chapter 2. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages which my lover, my lovers have given me. You've credited Baal long enough. So the verdict is clear. Israel, unfaithful forgotten her husband, sought after other lovers, and God now says, I am a jealous God. I will not bear with my people's unfaithfulness any longer. I will humble Baal, expose Israel, and drive my people back to me. They won't be able to find their pagan lovers anymore. Baal will be nowhere to be found. She will be hedged in. That's the language in chapter two. It is strong language and I've softened it. If we're not careful, though, if we stop there, we would have a wrong view of God. We could almost get, get the impression that, that God is, is like the parent that takes away all the sweets so that all that's left is Vegetables. Or like Swimmy and I sometimes do, to give our children a sense of choice. We'll give them the option of what they eat between two vegetables. Right? Just pick your vegetable. You know? That's not what God's doing. He's doing that. That's not all he's doing. That's, that's not it at all. He isn't just using cattle panels to drive his people back to him. Notice his heart now in point number two, God's heart of faithful love. Point number two, God's heart of faithful love, beginning in verse 14. Listen for it. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. He's not going to reason with her. That hasn't worked. Israel's heart is hard. He says, no, I'm going to allure, I'm going to woo, I'm going to entice, I'm going to win her love. This is how one author put it. He will draw her back into a reunion with himself that, if she had anticipated it, she would not have been willing to accept it. And so God will more than uh, match the seductions of Baal with his irresistible grace, right? He's going to woo her, he's going to win her. This mention of wilderness here in verse 14. He's going back to the Exodus. Going back to the honeymoon period, we might say. Going back to when Israel and Yahweh were closer, when there was affection, before all these centuries of paganism and false worship had come through. And he says, I'll speak tenderly to her and she will respond even after all that unfaithfulness. That's what verse 15 says. Past times of trouble will become doorways of hope. This will be the opportunity now. Affection will be awakened again. I I just love this language, right? He used the language of wooing and affection. One. Jump down to chapter 3, verse 5, the end of our passage this morning. After the children of Israel Afterward, the children of Israel, this is after exile, shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And it is then, only then, after the nation's heart has been won to the Lord by the Lord, that they will begin to show signs of outward repentance. The nation who forgot her husband... Will now in verse 16 forget her lovers look down at verse 16 in that day declares the Lord I will call sorry you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the bails from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And then God promises a covenant with creation, a return to Eden-like peace and tranquility after exile, after defeat, after what will be described in chapter 3, verse 4, is this promised age of safety. No more war. No more fear of war. In this new age, I think culminating in the millennial reign of Christ, overflowing into the new creation, it... It won't just be a time. It won't just be a season. It will be forever. Listen to verses 20 or 19 and 20. How beautiful is this? What a promise. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord three times. He says it. This is a, a fresh betrothal. And the idea isn't. Oh, God's just going to go to engagement. He's never going to marry again. No, no, no. That's not it at all. Right. You say there's not going to be a probation period. There's going to be an Unspoiled newness to our union after all the spoiling that israel has done for so long the ugly days of the wayward wife and these lesser lovers it will be forgotten what a gospel picture here forgiveness reconciliation welcome as if nothing was wrong or ever had been wrong Friends, these sins of the nation of Israel, these very real sins, the people of God under the old covenant are not just kind of swept under the rug. They're not hidden. They're not ignored, but rather they're dealt with. Right? God sent his son to pay the price, to secure the forgiveness, to win the redemption, to bring the reconciliation. So we repent and we believe this good news. And then we find that in Christ there's no probation period. There's no holding his children at arm's length for a time. There's full affection from our God for his children, from Christ for his bride. God says, in effect, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness forever. I will win your affection and I will not simply require your faithfulness. I will provide it. I will enable you to love me forever. You will call me my husband. And you will know me deeply, intimately, permanently. The reversal that we saw at the end of our passage last week, the end of chapter 1. He continues here at the end of chapter two. Look at how chapter two ends, the end of verse twenty three and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to my people, You are my people, and he shall say, "You are my God." And then, in chapter three, he returns, returns to the present, if you will, from last week, He returns to Hosea and Gomer, he returns to the prophet and his marriage. The story that began in chapter 1, which has been paused as he's given his verdict and then his promises, is now picked up in chapter 3. And God's heart of faithful love, which has been heard, is now commanded to be seen through the prophet Hosea. So Hosea isn't simply to, to keep his wife home, right? To keep other lovers at bay. No, he's to love his wayward wife he's to pursue and love her chapter one we saw this pattern right there was a hard command given to Hosea and then there was a reason the word for here's the reason that's what we have here in chapter three look at verse one the Lord said to me that is to Hosea go again love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. As I was studying this week, it was interesting, the commentaries wrestling with what in the world with raisin cakes. Some of you are like, I don't know, but raisins are bad. so Raisin cakes are bad. And some were saying, okay, these were used in pagan worship and and all these kind of details. Some may be true, some may be speculation. And then I read an author who said this. Well, that's odd. And isn't that the point? And I I think that might be it, right? Israel will love anything but Yahweh. Bring on the raisin cakes bring them out. Anything will do. And God loves Israel even when she's loving raisin cakes. What are those? Who knows? It doesn't matter. So to picture God's covenant keeping love, Hosea now is to love Gomer, even while she loves another, he must go to her and verse two buy her at some cost to himself. He must go and redeem her. We're not told the details. We don't know why she needs to be bought back. It seems that she's all in with sin and deep in and, and so he needs to redeem her and then call her to faithfulness even as he promises his own faithfulness look at verse three and i will say to her you must dwell as mine for many days you shall not play the horror belong to another man so will i also be to you god's heart of faithful love is heard in these chapters is seen in God's pursuit of wayward Israel, and then Hosea models it for us all. But God's love is seen more clearly, more explicitly, more immediately in the love of Christ for his bride. Christ lovingly pursued and then sacrificially served his bride. He didn't come to be served. But to serve, to give his life, not simply some silver and barley like in 3-2, but his life as a ransom for many. He came committed to serve his bride. Christ gave himself up to secure her redemption. He gave up his life to give her hers. And he did all of this while we were yet sinners. While we were Gomer-like. While we were unfaithful. Jesus didn't consider your loveliness and then set his affection on you. He didn't consider your beauty and then act in accordance with it. He doesn't just love those that are lovable or easy to love. No, he loves spiritual adulterers. Our rebellion is personal. Our sin matters. He loves an unfaithful bride. He is Hosea. We are Gomer. He's the perfect bridegroom. And we are his sworn enemies until he sets his affection on us and wins us and woos us and calls us to himself and changes us from the inside out until he purifies us through his promises of faithfulness and begins to change us. So we joyfully submit to him, to his love, to his care. Friends, we love our bridegroom because he first loved us. This is the culmination of the gospel. This is the culmination of God's covenant-keeping love. And so because of his love, I, a Gomer-like sinner, can say, I know him. I know my creator. I know my God. He knows me. Intimately, personally, permanently. I have a relationship of love with the most lovely being that can be imagined. And it's real. I've tasted and seen that he's good. I hope you can say I've been rescued by his affection. And I can't not love him. He's so he's so lovely. This is the gospel, friends. Uh, given the love that we have for him by the one who has loved us so faithfully, called out of darkness into light, called from unfaithfulness by the faithful one, and then credited with the faithfulness we have not done, and then enabled to remain faithful to him by his grace alone. Friends, no one has ever loved you like him. No one. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me address you briefly. Do you see your unfaithfulness? Your unfaithfulness to the one who, who made you and is sustaining your very life. Is giving you any blessing you've experienced. And yet whom you're ignoring. Will you turn from what the Bible calls spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to God. Repent of your posture away from him and allow him to to drive you to himself, to turn in faith and trust to Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what a joy it is now around this table to pause and reflect and linger and enjoy his love. As we remember his body broken, his blood shed, that he might buy us back, that he might win us, secure us from the slave market of sin. I'm going to have the men head to the back as we prepare to observe the Lord's table. As they do that, let me close our time in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you you meet us in our brokenness, in our waywardness. And you use anything and everything to, to direct us, to channel us, to drive us back to you. And yet it is not... just removing all blessing forever if we it's not that kind of thing at all it's a winning and a wooing and alluring and an enticing it's an affectionate love for us in our sin so that we might respond indeed we love our bridegroom because he first loved us so father god i pray that there might be some here this morning who are seeing for the first time your patience your long-suffering for the life that they've lived, even, even to this day, crediting themselves, crediting anything and everything but you for the blessings they've known. Would you help them to turn from these lesser loves and help them to turn to you, help them to see your pursuing love through the cross in Jesus. And Father God, I pray for, for those of us who have been wooed and won and who have been given a new affection and who see you as the most lovely being that, can, that we could even imagine. We pray that you would awaken in us a renewed love for you as we reflect on your love for us through Jesus. As we gather around this table of remembrance, I pray that you would move us from our heart, or rather from our mind to our heart, from our thoughts of remembrance to our affections of love. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.